Hey there, this is Hannah, Chief Rebel at DeSkills. Imagine your high schooler could learn to harness artificial intelligence to solve real-world problems for small businesses and nonprofits. Imagine they could get paid doing these impact projects on the weekends or summer break. And imagine that as a result, they could leave high school with more experience and connections than most college graduates. That's DeSkills. Learn more at skills.io. That's dskills.io. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. If you're a committed education change agent ready to roll up your sleeves and reimagine teaching and learning, simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. My guest today is Sarah DeLuca, a kindergarten and first grade early childhood educator at Hanahaoli School in Honolulu, where she has been teaching and learning with and from her students, colleagues, and families since 2009. Sarah was born and raised in Honolulu and graduated from Iolani School. She received her bachelor's degree from the University of Oregon in International Studies and her master's in teaching at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She has lived and studied in Italy and enjoys traveling to spend time with extended family there. Terry George, the executive director of the Hawaii-based Harold Castle Foundation, wrote the following for this episode. Sarah DeLuca brings intentionality and a deep love of children to her work as an educator in a progressive school. As a parent, I got to experience this firsthand when I saw how my own children grew as curious and confident learners while in her class. Sarah really works to reflect on her teaching practice and to do so not alone, but with other educators. How wonderful would it be if teaching were a team sport every day where teachers worked together, talked with one another about teaching strategies, and adjusted their curriculum after seeing what works best for the children under their care. A curious learner herself, Sarah recently returned from a year in Italy where she intensely studied the Reggio Emilia approach to teaching and learning. Listeners to this podcast, you are in for a treat. Bob Peters, Sarah's former head at Hanahaoli School and a progressive educator of global renown, said this about her for this episode. True educators are always engaged in the process of learning and growing. Sarah DeLuca is one of those true educators. Sarah views herself as a teacher of children, not content, and a student of their learning. She respects their voices and the experiences they bring to their learning. Her recent sabbatical study of Reggio Emilia practices in Italy is emblematic of Sarah as a learner. Sarah took the opportunity to immerse herself in the exploration of the Reggio focus on the environment as the third teacher 
the teacher as researcher of children's thinking and the use of documentation to make thinking visible. I recommend her contributions to the Hanahaole Professional Development Center blog to all educators, parents, as well as teachers, where Sarah shares the results of her research. There is much we can learn from Sarah's insights and reflections about the aesthetics and environment of early childhood learning. In order to understand Sarah DeLuca, you have to know the extent to which Bob Peters inspired her thinking about learner-centered education. As you listen to this episode, think about these three questions Mr. Peters believes kids are always asking, which Sarah heard in her first faculty meeting with him. Who am I? How does the world work? What is my place in it? So, What School Could Be podcast listeners, I have a suggestion for you. Pause this episode for just a second and go get yourself a glass of Chianti, some olives, some pecorino cheese, and some focaccia bread. This episode is going to make you hungry to learn, so best bring some provisions for the journey. And now, here's my conversation with Sarah DeLuca. Sarah DeLuca, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Hi, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So, Sarah, in this first section, I want to have our listeners get to know you, your mind, your heart, the way experience guides and shapes you. So we'll talk about your teaching and your time in Italy in more depth a little bit later. But in the beginning part here, we're just going to get to know you. So... Sarah, John Dewey, the great philosopher and educator, once said, quote, education is not preparation for life. Education is life itself, end quote. So in what ways did your growing up years, your, as we say in Hawaii, small kid time, capture or mirror the meaning of Dewey's words? And if I might add to this question, how did summers in northern Wisconsin fit into education as life itself? Mm, What a great question. I love this quote. (laughs) (laughs) We live by this quote and I live by it. It's very true to my own life and my own education and experience and background. And growing up here in Hawaii, we grew up in the very back of Palolo Valley, which was a magical place for young children. Mm. We grew up on a cul-de-sac with other young children in the neighborhood. So we kind of had this quintessential experience where we could just run out into the street, run down to the stream, play in the mountains and, you know, be called in time for dinner. Mm. And it's sort of this like idyllic throwback to child childhood that my own children, for example, don't have that. And I, I kind of mourn that. But I really, really appreciate and I find so much learning in those early days and experiences. One of the biggest would be freedom. Mm. And I think, you know, my parents are educators in their own right, not not elementary or early childhood, but they very much valued unstructured playtime. So we weren't, you know, really super scheduled. We had sort of minimal after-school activities. And even in the summer, 
we had a lot of time (laughs) on our hands to kind of run amok. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a child, you think of like, oh, gosh, like, you know, you get bored. And now I see we know that getting bored is wonderful for children. There's been studies done on this and what it does for your brain and your creativity and how, you know, things come alive when you have the time and space to be bored. But as children, we we grew up here in Hawaii. And then my mother's from Chicago. And she's one of seven children. She's the oldest of seven, the only girl. She has six younger brothers. Mm. And we would see my grandparents and we would see all my cousins in the summertime when we went to northern Wisconsin. A lot of families in the Chicago area would go up to the Northwoods, as they're called, and just, you know, picture beautiful pine trees and lakes and fresh air and this was a tradition every summer. My mother was a professor, so she had the summer off and my father would run his business via fax machine mm-hmm. and we would spend summers at the lake and it was family time and it was just time for lots of adventure and mm. and being together with children of all ages, multi-age and lots of outdoor exploration and play. And so... Yeah, education was life. We learned about the animals by, you know, trying to chase the chipmunks. We learned how to fish. We mm-hmm. swam, we picked berries, we made jam with our grandparents. And we had many learning experiences that I are very nostalgic for me. Yeah, Sarah, I love that. I too grew up in Hawaii and on the windward side of Oahu. And I love the idea that boredom is the mother of invention. <laughs> That sure was the case for me and my my five brothers and my sister. There were seven of us in the family. And who, boy, the things that we invented probably would have, you know, landed my parents in Child Protective Services or us, you know, today because we just raged all over the place. I also, you know, when I was thinking about this question, Sarah, I started thinking about the fact that my mother actually had a dinner bell. It was a big ship's bell mounted in the kitchen. And when she started banging on that thing at four o'clock or five o'clock in the afternoon, you could hear it a mile away. And then the family would begin to gather from the forests and from the streams and from everywhere and sit yeah. down to dinner together, right? And I and I suspect that in Wisconsin and also in Palolo, that that was the case for you, that you gathered together? We did. Yeah. The gathering together at dinner without fail through my entire childhood and, and through middle school and high school was a sacred time for our family. And it, it it's the same for our family now. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Awesome. So slight left turn here, Sarah, you authored a 40-book place-based yeah. reader series that are phonics-based. And I'm going to read a paragraph from the series website. And I quote, Every child in Hawaii and Micronesia can have the ability to achieve success in reading and in life. Best Press's supplemental curriculum materials were designed to meet the diversified needs of Hawaii schools and the greater Pacific's learning environments, end quote. So what is the Island Reader Series, and what does it say about the mind and the heart and the values of Sarah DeLuca? Like, from what deep wellspring did this series arrive? Yeah. Okay. So when I first entered the master's in education and teaching program at the University of Hawaii, Mm -hmm. I remember one of our very first observations was at a school in Nanakuli. And it was a beautiful school. 
and very place-based in so many ways. And we were so impressed and blown away with the teachers and the children of this school. I'll never forget, we walked into a kindergarten classroom. And at the time, I believe it was No Child Left Behind. Yeah, mid-90s. Mm-hmm. really strong in all of the public schools and they were man, you know, mandated to follow it yeah. and to have all the standards posted. And so at this time, this kindergarten, beautiful kindergarten children were learning about fall and autumn in the middle of Nanakuli. And, you know, I remember these discussions we had afterwards with our classmates that these, it was just so divergent from their reality and their experience really of pretty much most children in Hawaii who do not experience a big change in the seasons. And so that's like kind of like what they were studying at the time and also what the early reader material related to. And so then, you know, fast forward a little bit, I become a kindergarten, first grade, early childhood teacher. And one of my favorite parts is having sort of the joy and magic of reading when children learn to decode and are empowered to read themselves. And so A lot of the content that we have is very, when they're first learning to read, it's very simple, sort of very tiny books, line drawings, black and white. And the content is, you know, Matt sat on gym or very simple. Mm -hmm. And so we started thinking about like, well, how could we have a place-based reader series? And my family runs Best Press Publishing and my father actually... Buddy Best had this idea for years to have an island readers. Like, what if we had a placed-based reader series? And after a few years, I told him, you know what? I'm ready. I had taken lots of different courses on teaching reading and had so much experience with kids. And this is pre-kids, having my own kids, went through and wrote it. And it was an incredible process because my own students were the best editors. Wow. And they helped to inform so much, you know, for example, have a book about looking in the water and seeing certain kinds of fish. And, you know, I'd be reading with a child and they'd be like, oh, where's the crab? I don't see the crab. It says there's a crab. Like, okay, we got to add that crab. (laughs) And the biggest feedback now is when I read with children and there's, you know, a book about going to Tutu's house or the North Shore, or it's subject matter that children here can relate to is that they say like, I've been to that beach or they can relate to the content. It's it's part of, of their culture and their sense of place and who they are. And so mm. that's been a special experience. Yeah. And tell our listeners about the illustration part of it. How did that happen? How did you design it? What partners might you have had? In what ways were potentially the kids involved and all of that? Yeah. So we worked, actually, I worked closely with my husband who helped is the current director of Best Press, Dave. And we both were really drawn to the Mo Willems. There's a book called Nuffle Bunny. Mm. And in Nuffle Bunny, there's black and white photos and then color illustrations sort of interlaid on top. And we just loved the playful look of it. And so that was sort of the inspiration for the design. Of course, black and white photos, we took one look and we're like, nope, not here. (laughs) Not in Hawaii. There's no way. And so we had a photographer, Joe Abad, and he was the graphic designer as well. And then we worked with Anne Kondokorum, who wrote Hawaii Spam Cookbook, actually. Mm -hmm. She did all of the illustrations, and then they are overlaid to produce the final effect. Mm. So it sounds to me like the deep wellspring that this series came from was really a strong sense inside yourself that the kids 
you know, were lacking sort of a way to lock into any sort of identity, that they, they wouldn't see themselves, they wouldn't even see the environment, they wouldn't see anything about the seasons or anything like that in the readers that they had. And so this series is sort of a way to bridge that, right? It comes exactly. from maybe a sense of empathy on your part about what they were feeling as they were reading these non-Hawaii readers. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was. It's a combination of having them see themselves in the literature, having experiences that matter to them, like learning hula or making pa'iai and poi, learning to surf, but also very common, exciting early childhood experiences, losing your first tooth, yeah. the first day of school. But in Hawaii, you often give a lay. And how is that different? Mm. And so mm -hmm. those, yeah, those are definitely the impetus for all those experiences. The challenging part was having the phonetic structure fit into all of that and yeah. making it very intentional that they can build upon each level. That's awesome. I love the the bridge building that was going on and is going on as those readers are used. So kind of along the same line, Sarah, back in 2008, as part of your graduate thesis, you and a partner colleague named Yumi wrote a blog about dreams of starting a school in Cambodia. And in that blog, which was marvelous, by the way, you two asked three marvelous questions. So they are, what is global education? What is the significance of global education? And how can we implement global education in our classrooms? So here it is 16 years later, and I wonder if you think these are still the essential questions you and Yumi posed back then, and if yes, why? great question. It's so interesting that, you know, going back to that and looking back at that blog, and you know, that I had sent you, I looked at sort of like the pillars of global education. And I kind of gasped because I realized that so much of what progressive education is and so much of what we do, for example, at Hanaho'oli, it was collaboration, communication, relationships, learning by doing and hand experiential learning, mm -hmm. problem solving, you know, sort of all of these skills that we know that ultimately in this world with the job force changing so quickly and technology that children and all of us ultimately need to have to be able to be flexible and to, to grow with the changing world and to communicate. So I think they're all still very relevant. I don't have them at the tip of my tongue, exactly mm. the definition, but I see it more so now even than before, mm. how this like understanding of each other's perspectives and beliefs can really shape and influence who we are and how we make decisions and how we relate to each other. So let me come at this maybe from a slightly different direction. Let's imagine that, you know, you have your classroom and as I did my deep dive into your life and your pedagogy, I'm understanding that it's it's a multi-age classroom. 
It's also a team classroom, team teaching classroom, and understanding that it's just not practical for most mm. kids to go on a trip somewhere. You know, you can't take them to Scotland. It's barely even affordable to take them to another island here in Hawaii. How do you turn your classroom into a global classroom? How do, how do you do it? Like, what does it look and sound and feel like when you actually start to do that? That's an interesting question. Our focus now is this combination of really focusing on being place-based. Mm. You know, at, that's really like an increased focus, I would say. And then using that as a jumping point to learn about other cultures and places. Mm. In an early childhood setting, I think, for example... We're learning a lot about diversity and what that looks like in different ways. We start with our identity and who we are and sort of what represents us and then look at different change makers and in society. And that kind of helps us kind of look into and introduce other cultures and places. Mm. And then learning about ourselves, our names, the cultures that represent who we are we really celebrate who we are and who our current community is. So for example, children might be, you know, their name might mean something that comes from Okinawa. And we use that to study and learn about their particular family's culture and history in Okinawa or a tradition that comes from the American South, a family that shared about black eyed peas. And they came in and they shared about how black eyed peas originated in West Africa. Mm. And then we learned a little bit about that place, but it's all contextual. Right. So I think in a place where I was probably 16 years ago would have been more about like, let's learn about all these different places and let's have these common themes And now it's coming from a place where it's tangible that kind of stems from our community and then goes from there. And then of the content piece, you know, for example, we're studying animals. We learn about animals everywhere. We Skype with our scientists in Antarctica Mm -hmm. and we're kind of brought there with the videos and the content and use that as like a bridge point to learn about other cultures and places. Mm. Same goes for we're going to start a study of communication and we look at how communications changed over time and we find places like Egypt on the map and we learn about papyrus and where paper comes from and more about the culture that way. So it's kind of twofold, but I think a lot of it stems from the children and the families in the community that make up the class and kind of bring in that meaning. Mm. Oh, love that. You know, in my previous episode, my guest and I talked about reciprocity as a skill. Mm. And I love the idea of expanding this conversation around durable skills or critical skills or essential skills, which sometimes I feel like we've gotten, we've boxed ourselves into like seven or eight words and then we get stuck with them. And I love the idea of understanding and engaging diversity as a skill, that that's Mm. actually something that you can grow, you can build that skill. So that's like super cool. Okay. So Good segue to this last question before we go to our first break. And this starts to transition us to your life, you know, as a teacher and your philosophy of education. So Sarah, based on some reflections you shared with me about your later years in school here in Honolulu, you came to this thought grounded in your life's experience. And I'm going to quote you. Knowing we are driven by connections, relationships, and social interactions, 
This completely influences my own teaching and learning these days, end quote. So you came to this thought while reflecting on the idea that you could have done better in school if you had not been socializing so much. But now we are at the core question about school. So is school about doing better at academics or about developing social capital through connections, relationships, and the like? And did I just box us into a false binary? And if I did, how do we get out of this box? Sorry, this is like a really nutty question. I went down a rabbit hole. Absolutely. And I think when I say do well at school, you know, who knows, maybe my grade would have been a little bit better. Maybe I would have (laughs) memorized more content, regurgitated it. But now, you know, I deeply know and understand and value that we learn through the the pedagogy of relationships. We, the connections that we have, it's, for me, it's everything. And Mm. the way that we, you know, the environment of the class, the way it's set up, the way that children should be able to engage socially the entire day, pretty much. And there are times, you know, when we're listening to a guest speaker or story and things like that. And, and there are times of that rest and whatnot, but it absolutely influences what I believe about teaching and and learning from each other. It's incredible to see the synapses firing, even in like a partner painting or building together and how the collective understanding and creativity and knowledge building happens in tandem with other people. It's mm. It's, you know, we're wired to connect. It's part of our... I think it's a deep part of our species and it should be reflected in in how we school. Mm. So Sarah, you know, you let's imagine that there is this moment where there's some sort of a, you know, a painting project going on or a building project going on and this marvelous thing this transferability of knowledge is actually happening kid to kid and this is an idea Sarah that has really come onto my radar screen lately about this sort of, you know, not this traditional sage on the stage, one-way directed, you know, pathway of knowledge that comes from the teacher into my head and then out in some sort of, you know, memorization check. So let's imagine that this is happening. How do you and your teacher colleagues begin to sort of document what's happening, this transferability of knowledge? Because ultimately, you know, parents are going to want to know, other people are going to want to know, like, how do you how do you go about capturing what's happening in these little intimate conversations between kiddos as they work on painting or and so on and so forth? I definitely think that for me personally, this has been shifted significantly mm. since this past year and and the the influence that the Reggio Emilia approach has had on me. I think I've always been really attuned to it and documented through photos. Mm. And the thing about team teaching, which I, it's just an incredible dynamic experience and and really a deep part of who I am as an educator now is that we're in constant communication about what's happening in the classroom. Mm. And so I would immediately pull my partner teacher in and be like, did you notice the Mm. (laughs) what's happening here and how, you know, how they're sharing how to mix colors and how they're giving each other ideas. And then all of a sudden it's a partner painting and how like what are the processes that are happening? I think that's always been such a natural, exciting part of what we do. Mm. And I think now my practice has changed. I'm 
more attuned and pay closer attention. And I'm trying to listen more deeply to what they're saying and through photos, words, you know, video and, and sort of really documenting and, and then coming back to it, Mm. reflecting back on it. And then, you know, I've seen it start to happen where I've put it up on the walls, the children's photos, their thinking, their ideas, their artwork kind of all together and seeing the reflections that they have when they see themselves in that light. Mm, Wow, that's so cool. You know, I did an episode way back, I think even two years ago with Edna Hussey, who is somebody that I know you know, and you've actually visited Edna at her school, and she's a Reggio guru, if if there ever was one. And I remember talking with Edna in that episode about the concept of reading the room mm-hmm. in the context of of reading, learning to read, and that she was worried that we were pushing kids to learn to read too early, and that part of what we wanted to do is uh, teach them to read the world. And it sounds like your skills as an educator, as a guide, a coach, a sponsor, an advisor in the classroom, that your skills of reading the world and reading the room are growing, right? Does that, is that a fair way of looking at it? Absolutely. Yeah. Constantly growing. <laughs> it's that's what's so exciting about being in this field. You just don't stop learning. And yeah. the children are just really the primary source for me. Yeah. That's awesome. Even even today I was in a session where we were challenging the idea of even calling you a teacher. Let's let's drop mm-hmm. the word teacher and let's call you just learner. And you're all learners in a classroom. Interesting. That's awesome. So Hey everyone, we've been talking to Sarah DeLuca, an early childhood educator at Hanahaole School in Honolulu, where she has been teaching and learning with and from her students, colleagues, and families since 2009. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, Experience Matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Sarah DeLuca, an early childhood educator who, in 2023, spent a year in Italy 
in search of what Reggio Emilia learning looks, sounds, and feels like. Okay, so time to dive more deeply into your philosophy of education. So Sarah, drawing directly from your resume, I want to do what I'm going to call a, quote, paint a picture lightning round of prompts. So I will prompt you and you briefly paint a picture of what the prompt means so that our radio listeners get the concept. Okay. Sound okay? Yes. Awesome. Okay. Number one. So your resume states you are deeply rooted in constructivist progressive practices with an appreciation of developmentally appropriate practices. So in your learning spaces on any given day, Sarah, what does this mean? Paint us a picture. Okay, so constructivist practices, when I think of that, I think of children constructing their understanding through experiences and through social engagement and and interactions. So what this might look like is children going outside and studying the weather and making observations with all of their senses on what they notice and with a partner, maybe sketching and painting what they see and describing in detail in a developmentally appropriate way. We have such a range of learners. And, you know, we always say when children come to us, we look for growth over time and mm. we don't compare them and like they need to be here by the end of kindergarten. They should all be reading. They have the gift of time with us. And we know developmentally that there's such a range among them and we know how to help them wherever they are. So skill-wise, that would look different for every child. Mm. And we would appreciate where they are and where they came from and 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 their growth. You know, maybe they're sounding out words to add to their painting, to add to their writing, and maybe they're writing paragraphs. And it's a huge range and and developmentally we know that that's okay and that, you know, it there's change among them. We know that developmentally, there's so many play-based experiences that they need throughout the day, and that's how they grow and learn. And so Mm. that's a huge part of everything we do. And I'm really honoring that because a lot of times, you know, parents will say, oh, they're just playing, but it's not. It's so much, it's so much, there's like such a myriad of cognitive connections, social interactions (laughs) Mm. that happen within the world of play, self-regulation skills, that I think as an educator, we encourage that and recognize that and find ways to look around that. Like, for example, I'll give you like a math experience. We're learning the concept of 10. It's the 10th day of school. We go outside. We're spending time outside and we're collecting items in nature to maybe 10 items. Maybe we're working with a partner And then we create an art piece out of it. And then we think about ways to count, ways to to represent 10 in different formats. Some children might count by twos, some children might count by fives, and then they create a painting out of it. So sort of like this idea that learning doesn't happen in sections. Now we're doing math, now we're doing art, now we're going outside, now we're working with a partner. It can happen everywhere all at once. Mm. And then, you know, through all these different ways of creating and connecting all this learning and all these experiences, they look different for every kid, but they're, I think they're stronger and the connections are stronger and the understanding is more whole as a result. 
Wow, that example is such a beautiful example of, in my mind, of constructivist progressive practices. My goodness, I I have no recollection. Uh, you know, I'm 65, but I have no recollection of ever doing a sort of this is the tenth day of school. Let's go find all the tens out there. That's amazing. Okay. We have to go on to number two, because otherwise we'll go down a rabbit hole. All right, number two. Okay. What does it mean when you say in your resume, you are an empathetic and socially justice-minded educator who puts mm-hmm. the children's needs at the forefront of planning curriculum? That's a great question. I think as educators, you know, my, I think about my partner teachers and I, and we're always thinking about the children we have and adjusting accordingly. (laughs) For example, you know, children we've noticed lately have been like really physical on the playground. And we're thinking about like, well, what are some ways that we can give them the opportunity to move their bodies and have these big gross motor movements and sensory experiences? But how can we also help them develop the empathy and the self-regulation skills of when to stop when somebody says stop, when to have that, you know, consent and when to have those boundaries. And to me, that's an example also of social justice and understanding each other's boundaries and truly listening to each other at the forefront of our planning. Social justice, I think, is such a big part of like all realms. I think it all comes together When I think of progressive education, I think of democracy in education and children having a voice. Mm. And I know we'll talk about this later, but the Reggio Emilia schools, they don't call themselves socially just schools. But I think you would be hard pressed to find a more democratic school that focuses on the rights of every child and the voice of every child. I think letting them share who they are and really like having that strong sense of sharing their story and their identity and culture mm. and sense of place is is a huge part of what we do and a huge part of what I do as an educator. Wow, that's awesome. It gives me hope listening to you, Sarah, because I'm thinking about who these kids are going to grow up to be and that if they have the ability to live a life with others and even a sense of social justice, then we're going to be okay. All right, number three, what does it mean when you state in your resume that you are adept at forming a trusting and supportive relationship with the families of children through Mm -hmm. frequent communication, empathy, and partnership. Like, Paint us a picture of that briefly. I love forming relationships with the families. It's a huge part of, like, personally what I believe and also Hana Ho'oli's mission that the, the families are the first and foremost educator of the child. And I think that's such a powerful statement because we recognize all of the learning and education that's happening since birth with your family is so significant and important. And so when children come into the classroom, they are coming with all of these experiences and all this knowledge. And if we can strengthen that and come from a place of understanding and really love on behalf of the child, then it's incredible what we can do. I think I start off like personally, I like to really document a strengths-based image of the child and share that right away with families. So like within the first couple of weeks of school, sending out an email, an individual email to families with photos and descriptions and, and things like that. And then we have weekly communication that we share with everything that we're doing in the classroom that often includes quotes from individual children, photos, 
And then from there, we have frequent communication as needed. And then we invite them into the classroom at least once a week to be a part of the children's experiences and Mm. to celebrate what they celebrate. It's crucial, I Mm. think, for us. Well said, Sarah. I'm recalling my own experience as a high school teacher at two very large independent schools here in Hawaii and that I kind of, I I feel a sense of loss in listening to you because by the time parents get to that point in these independent schools at the upper school level, what I experienced was just the opposite. Meaning as a teacher, any any interaction with parents was pretty fearful. We felt mm-hmm. a lot of fear, most especially on those open house nights. I remember one teacher at one school literally throwing up in the bathroom because she was so scared of open house night and what the parents might do. And I guess my hope for the world, Sarah, is that somehow we can overcome that and that we can keep what you're doing at your level building all the way through high school, that it would be that kind of partnership. Sarah, I swear to you, like finding a small multicolored gemstone perched on a small rock in one's vegetable garden, I found the words, quote, Monet and math project in your resume. And I was like, what? This sounds interesting, this marriage of Monet's art and math. So what was this project and what was the pedagogical point of this seemingly marriage of opposites. Oh my goodness. This was from my very first teaching job as a first grade teacher. I was covering a teacher on maternity leave at Holy Nativity School. And I had a lot of freedom to try out different experiences for the children and to represent who I was as a teacher and to have all the, you know, creative experiences. And it was based on a book, I believe, I'm not sure if it was called Monet in math, but it was looking at math in art mm. and it was painting and it was it was seeing different kinds of mathematical concepts in art. And so, you know, for me, now I know like the language to use, but I guess as a child and th- growing up, I had what now I would deem as math trauma. Yeah. The way that we were taught math and solely based on computation and not a lot of real life application. And, you know, there was a lot of feeling of failure and I had a tutor for years. It was, I had, a you know, it's a very negative experience and I so badly don't want, first of all, my own children to to impart that on them. And then also these like, you know, negative attitudes of math, but also to the students. And so I think about like, how can we bring this creativity and magic and warmth to math, which is exciting and which is creative and which does have many different ways of solving the problems. And like this, more of this growth mindset and this excitement about it. It's funny, the math, we have this cozy corner in my classroom Mm. and my partner teacher and I, we developed it after this child during reading time, like sort of independent reading every day we have with partners or by yourself. And she would always like kind of hide under the easel. 
Mm. And we realized she needed a co- like a cozy nook, like a cozy spot. So we started with my partner, Chris was like, let's bring in this cardboard box and put a, you know, a curtain on it and see what happens. <laughs> and we put a, like a cute little lamp in there. And then all of a sudden it took flight and we children do math in there, you know, with like the nap time lights. And it's like this warm, positive experience with math. So I think that's where that initially stemmed the Monet, Monet and math. And it's, it's grown mm. a lot since then and changed in different ways, but how can we have, you know, positive experiences and relationships and interdisciplinary, right? We art and yeah. math can intersect and should. Yeah. I love the idea that you take two things that are normally siloed and studying math and you take a risk and you push them together and see what happens. That's the real innovation and creativity and imagination and teaching. I just love that example. So, okay. So kind of along the same line, Sarah, you listed a whole series of books and films for me that have been influential in your life, including, but definitely not limited to, All the Light You Cannot See, Beloved, and the documentary My Octopus Teacher, and I talked about in a previous episode of this show. So today, I want to focus on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, in part because of our What School Could Be treasured friends, Greg Bear and Ryan Rydzewski, who are the authors of the book When You Wonder You're Learning, which is about Fred Rogers. So Why is the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which listeners can see on Netflix, by the way, so important to you? And and what does your connection to this film tell us about Sarah DeLuca, the teacher? It started as a very personal connection because as a four-year-old, I was enamored with Mm. Mr. Rogers. And I remember sitting in our, you know, in front of our TV in our living room in Palolo watching him and then later seeing the documentary as an adult pretty recently a few years ago yeah really like having a totally newfound appreciation for just the soothing presence that he brings to children in such a simple like non-glamorous way absolutely and then so much more deeply imparts this empathy and this connection between people in such an incredible way, there was one point in the documentary that really stood out to me. And I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but it was related to, I think, to racism and civil rights. And he has this like really simple moment of bringing these children together. And it speaks volumes without even having to say anything. Mm. It's sort of like, you know... It's the modeling that he's doing. It's not what I say, it's what I do. Yeah. And like when you think of the experiences with your grandparents and the simplicity of and but the richness of experiences of being together, maybe playing cards, reading a book, cooking, when I think of like childhood today and how fast-paced everything is and how you know, we're really overstructuring kids in so many different ways and thinking about all the things they might need just to like scale back to that yeah. time base. And it's like, he's really honoring childhood for what it is. Yeah. Love that, Sarah. I, it, it takes us back to where we started this conversation, you know, not only about your growing up in Palolo, but also the summers in Wisconsin and just the whole concept of what a neighborhood is. And we'll get into this in a little bit after the break, but just the relativity of time and that when time slows down, you get a neighborhood feel. That's what has to happen to get a neighborhood feel. And I just thought a lot, Sarah, 
as I was thinking this through about your classroom as a neighborhood, and that if there were TV cameras, you know, mounted there, that in a way, you know, you're Mrs. Rogers, and it's your neighborhood, you and your team teachers. Anyway, that's kind of where my mind went to it. And I love that idea. Okay, so one more question before we go to our second break. So, Sarah, I'm a a huge fan of focused, intentional R&D-based site visits for educators, Mm -hmm. but I'm not really a fan of so-called learning walks, which seem unfocused and, frankly, a waste of folks' time on both sides of the equation. So recently you participated in your school's Heliao initiative by visiting four progressive schools in Northern California with fellow colleagues, leading to a deep reflection of who you all are as progressive educators. And boy, this was music to my ears. So where did you go and what research and development did you do prior to going on these visits? And what did you find and what does like post-site visit, quote unquote, deep reflection actually mean? Yeah, this was a wonderful experience. We had just turned 100 years old and it was part of our school's sort of like regrounding ourselves in who we are as a progressive school for 100 years. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of that deep reflection, but also like what else is out there in terms of progressive schools? And, you know, this sort of the marriage of the two. So we, I was part of a group that went to Northern California and we visited four schools in the Bay Area and in San Francisco We went to Peninsula School, Mm -hmm. Presidio Hill School. We went to Nueva School, but really not so much visiting the classrooms more. There was a conference that we attended there. And Mm -hmm. then personally, the most influential for me was Park Day School in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the research that we did, we got to spend basically an entire day at each school. We met with teachers. We got to see observed in many different classrooms. We had lunch with children, with the head of school. We attended assemblies, even sort of like an admissions parent gathering. And so we were able to do all this wonderful research. I was actually talking about this with my partner teacher, Chris, and she had this beautiful quote I wanted to share. She said, you know, to live everyone's school climate, you you have to put your feet on the ground Mm. and be there. Wow. And so that was such a cool opportunity for us to appreciate what other people, what other progressive schools are doing and in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so what we found, you know, is an opportunity to look within, to reflect on what we do. A lot of times was very validating on what we're doing with children and to see similarities and also like moments of inspiration and growth. And so we spent a lot of time reflecting as a faculty on sort of the main takeaways. And so what kind of like a deep reflection and change that's Mm. taken place from there is a huge takeaway, which has happened in K1, actually just this year is our first year, is our decrease in class size Mm. and Mm -hmm. future ratio. We noticed that that was a very prevalent theme. And so that's significantly decreased and we've seen a huge change since then. We have a social justice committee and a lot of work that has come out of that, which was such a natural fit for us as a progressive school and what we believe about representing student voice and democracy and education. And so it's time to kind of reground ourselves in what that means to us Mm. living in Hawaii. And then we've also had things like we have an Ime Ike week, which 
they're sort of like faculty and staff have shared certain passions that they do, like photography or cooking or gardening or knitting. And then children from all different ages come together. For example, like a junior kindergartner, a first grader, a fifth grader, sixth grader might all have a common interest and join different faculty and staff for hours of experiences. Yeah, We've had everything from knitting to golf to just different passions and showing us as adults have passions too and having this different like age cross faculty staff sort of community shared interests and enjoyment together. We got to take a look at how everyone's schedules their day. Yeah. And how they communicate about children through progress reports with parent communication. And we are now part of Penn, which is the Progressive Education Network, and regularly send people to the annual conference as well and has our schools presented. So that's been a huge exciting experience. We've also seen how how schools use the spaces that they have, the environments, and which is an exciting research and vantage point with Hanaholi and some new property that's been acquired. That's awesome. And before we go to break, Sarah, I'll just share with our listeners that a few years ago, I actually found a scrap of parchment paper in my father's archives after he passed away. And speaking of grade reports, it was a great report for him and his brother, Eric, at Hanahaul in 1920. And I know you celebrated, you know, 19, uh, sorry, 2018 was the 100 year anniversary. And that was It was really neat to see that because it was just sort of a ripped piece of parchment paper, you know, but there's a, there's a sense of history. And I'll also say before we go to break that I love the idea that you all went on this trip with such intention, but you were Mm -hmm. still wide open with wonder to what you might see that you, you know, didn't anticipate. And I think that that's, that's really cool as well. So hey everyone, we've been talking to Sarah DeLuca, an early childhood educator at Hanahaole School in Honolulu. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on the Story Podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Hey everyone, we are back with Sarah DeLuca. Sarah was born and raised in Hawaii. 
and has her bachelor's in international studies from the University of Oregon and a master's in teaching from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So Sarah, in this final section, let's take a trip to Italy, but with a stop in Ireland along the way. So you and your family went on sabbatical to Italy so that you could do a deep dive into the Reggio Emilia way of early childhood learning. And there's a quote that you read once that says, quote, Italy is a dream I keep coming back to for the rest of my life, end quote. So this got me thinking about an On Being podcast episode we both listened to with the great Irish poet John O'Donohue, who talks about the inner landscape of beauty, a pedagogy of the interior, if you will, mostly in the context of the perceived lack of beauty most kids face in inner city landscapes and schools built, frankly, like hard concrete prisons. And Italy has a lot of dense urban cores, and there must be thousands of schools in these hard concrete places. Maybe the same is true. I know the same is true in America and in Hawaii. So how do the Italians go about immersing their children in beauty in spaces where there seems to be none? Like what can our American educator listeners get from what you are about to describe? Wow, that's a really deep question. (laughs) (laughs) I think the way to think about this would be that you're in one of those hard, concrete urban schools. What can those teachers, which by the way, are I mean, they could be elementary school, they could also be middle level or, or high school. How do you go about bringing beauty even in the midst of all of that hardness? And I think that's where I was listening most carefully to John O'Donohue was just about how that how you do that as inner work. And I think there's so much to learn from the Reggio approach. That's what I would love uh, our listeners to hear about. Yeah. So when I think about that, I think about Italian society. There's this concept of honoring childhood for what it is. And not just that, but time for what it is. And I think there's this like very, there's this intention of the beauty in experiences and the beauty in relationships and the Mm. beauty of moments together. So you know, no matter where we are, like what, how can we give children opportunities to share those different things, to share their identities, their culture, to have a voice in Mm -hmm. who they are, to create strong relationships with them. Mm. And a huge part of that, when I think of how to do that with children, with students and how to form those relationships is this really strong concept in the Reggio schools, which is the, the image of the child and how it supports beauty from within, because you're saying that they have this overarching concept that we must have a strong, competent image of who children are. And they need to know that we think that in so many different ways, through our words, through our photos, through our documentation of their work, with what we say about them, with how we listen to them, with intention, with how we let them share their voices and giving attention to that, displaying their ideas photos of them in action. And then from that, like the inner beauty that I think O'Donohue talks about a lot can be let out and represented Mm. in a voice. And in Italian culture, they're so orally strong. And so, you know, in your final exam in high school, for example, will be like, 
you standing in front of a class for 45 minutes talking and persuading, you know, your case, my daughter's second grade to pass second grade to go into third grade in Italy. She introduced a poem that she wrote about a birch tree outside of her classroom and shared all about it in Italian, fully wow. in Italian. Wow. That's starting in first grade, mm. which is considered for, formal school in Italy. They begin this like strong oral co- tradition. And I think about how, you know, even in the most traditional Italian schools, they have this opportunity to really like share their voice in that strong and powerful way. And also one more thing that when I think about sharing the beauty from within and sharing the strong image, I think about listening mm. and Carlina Rinaldi, this Reggio Emilia educator, has this beautiful quote. She has this document called The Pedagogy of Listening. And she has this quote that I'm going to read that I think really, for me, like ties this all together. She goes, listening as sensitivity to the patterns that connect us to others, abandoning ourselves to the conviction that our understanding and our own being are but small parts of a broader integrated knowledge Mm. that holds the universe together. Mm. So like by sharing who we are and giving time and space to form these relationships and connections, how can we share this? And I think that's the beauty and the experience and the connections and the relationships. Yeah, love that. That's exactly what O'Donohue talks about. And I, I love what you've said because even where you are in the most hard and hardened environments. You know, we're thinking a lot about Gaza these these days and the and the poor kids, those kids who are living in that in that environment right now, that where the resiliency comes in is in the relationships with people. And that yeah. a part a lot of that has to do with you developing your own inner light, your own mm-hmm. inner beauty, your own sense of yourself. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that if, if again, my hope for the future, Sarah, is that we can carry that upwards in our school systems so that that remains part of what education is and not just at that young kiddo level. Okay, so continuing on, you wrote a series of blogs during your 2023 sabbatical in Italy. And, you know, for a radio audience, sometimes it's hard to capture or re-describe what's in a blog or blog. So I came up with what I am calling essential questions inspired by all five of these essays. So okay. there are three of these questions. So your your responses will sort of need to be un-Italian in nature, meaning <laughs> concise, okay. which the Italians yeah. are not, right? Yeah. So here we go. Here's the first one. And again, these three are, are drawn from reading through all five blogs and just like absorbing them and getting a feel for them. So here's the first one. It's a given that Italians, especially Italian mothers, love and adore their children. So for our mostly American radio audience, I wonder if you can elaborate on what it means to believe that children are capable of constructing their own understanding of the world, which, Sarah, I personally think is the Grand Canyon gap between Americans and Italians. It's a whole society and a cultural shift. And so it's it's from an attitude of from everyone, including including the mothers and the fathers, but the community members too. Yeah. So you walk into like a cafe in Italy and a cafe owner will often come and talk to the children and and kind of come to their level mm. and ask them how they are. And so 
it's a shift because when I take my children, you know, perhaps to restaurants here, they're, they're always looking at the adults. Yeah. And then what, you know, I think it's clear what that says about like what we believe about the image of the child and how capable they are. Mm. And it's a difference in language and the way we talk about our children. I think it's easy to hear other parents and get into this, like, oh, my kid did this, my kid did that. Yeah. You know, was it, gosh, was this and that annoying, you know, and then you think about like the way you're talking about your children, it was a very refreshing shift for us to, oh, you know, my love, my sweetie, <laughs> my right? my dad would pick up his son, mio tesoro, my treasure, mm. the words, the loving, beautiful words that they use to describe their children is, Yeah. Mm, yeah. And it, it leads to that constructing of their own understanding of the world. It's like a yeah. giant cultural permission grounded in love. That's what I learned as I went through these couple weeks of preparing for this. That's su super awesome. All right. Number two, Sarah, your blog titled The Sweetness of Time digs deep into the Italian's paradoxical relationship to time. So I wonder what you think is our American relationship to time and how is that reflected in our approach to what school is and how, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to John O'Donohue talking about how can time not be a bully in our, in our way of approaching kids and their construction of the world and how we teach and how we learn. You know, when I was reflecting back on the blogs and, and thinking more about what O'Donohue said and, for me personally, time, like the overall biggest takeaway and gift for not only me professionally, but personally and for my family this past year, mm. spending the year in Italy was the gift of time. Yeah. And I see now how much that the single concept completely affects the quality of our lives, the quality of our relationships, our well being. And it feels like a race here. Yeah. And it feels like more business-like, like more transactional. And we schedule our days in such a way that we go from one thing to the next without always taking the time to have these deep connections and relationships. And so I when I think about schools, that's a big focus point is really looking at how we structure the day for children. Yeah. Preschool generally have the gift of these really big blocks of time I'm thinking more and deeply reflecting on. And then when we get into the elementary years, we're really divided into these tighter blocks Yeah, where there's less of a deeper time. And so that's something we're really, really researching and looking into mm. at our school. And, but just generally as a society, even what you do after school with your time, with children, you know, they're often overstructured and rushed to different activities. And I really reflective to like the quality of the time when we're doing nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, am I present for that? And, you know, yeah, it's, there's so much to reflect on with time. Yeah, that's awesome, Sarah. I, I recall a number of years, many years ago, there was a legislator here in Hawaii who, unfortunately for him, proposed a law that would give uh, state workers a nap in the middle of the day. And we in Hawaii all blew up over that idea. And I can just imagine the Italians laughing their heads off because that's part of their culture, right? I mean, they're this, this relativity of time. So that's great. All right, one more um, in terms of your blog. So, Sarah, in the American system of schooling, 
the laboratory occupies a very specific space, either in a biology classroom or the chemistry classroom, lots of glass vials and Bunsen burners and such. So you write that at least in early childhood education in Italy, the concept of the atelier, I think I'm saying that correctly, sees the laboratory as something different. Like, so for American educators, how can the whole world become a laboratory? And what investment would we have to make to, to make this idea manifest? And this is really drawing on, you know, your whole year's experience in Italy. The concept of the atelier is magical because it's also, they talk about also like a laboratory for the senses, right? Like, so I think of it like it can be a dedicated space in your classroom. It can be, the whole school could be this laboratory in this space of research, but basically it's listening to the children and where they're at. I think providing a myriad of experiences and through the hundred languages of children, mm. I think all the different mediums and you know, film, photography, clay, art, all different kinds of things. What are the all the ways that children can express themselves? Maybe it's working in the mala and, you know, maybe it's being in the mud kitchen. Maybe it's like noticing that children need certain sensory experiences and bringing out sand trays. And what kinds of experiences can we give them to further their research and construct their understanding and so the atelier is like a really dedicated space in each of the Reggio preschools has one and they are mind-blowingly incredible. Mm. The only thing I can liken it to is like an interactive museum mm. space that is so intentional with all of its designs. For example, like when I walked into one of the ateliers in Reggio, they're studying fall leaves. It was October and the different colors and where they come from and the sort of the cycle of life and all these different questions the children had. And so there was clay for them to explore that. There was different like crushed dried leaves of different colors with water mm. and brushes to paint it, like yeah. paint fine color from it themselves. And like, what are all the different possibilities that can spark our imagination and creativity and further our understanding of the world mm. in different ways? Wow. I love that. And I'm in this moment, Sarah, I'm thinking about my my sister, who's the oldest of seven kids, and her daughter. Uh, my sister's name is Martha, and her daughter's name is Jane. And Jane lives next door to my sister. And every time I go to my sister's house, it is that space that you just described. It's like the Ben Franklin craft store stuffed <laughs> into her house. And they're yeah. doing things all the time. And I'm like, when do you find time to make baskets? <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing, right? And again, my hope for the world is that as kids move up through their educational levels, they can continue to see the whole world as a laboratory where they can become natural scientists, if you will, and just be able to read the world as we talked about earlier, right? I think that that would be very cool. So, Sarah, we uh, down to the last couple of questions of this awesome conversation. You recently, with your publisher husband, 
went back and rewatched Ted Dintersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed. And you focused on the story of Samantha, the young woman who emerges from extreme shyness to direct a school theater production on exhibition night. So, Sarah, what makes Samantha's story so compelling? And how do we, as a community of educators, move away from Samantha's SAT scores as a metric of success and towards what's important. Like, and, and for those listeners, by the way, who've seen the film, Samantha is now a PhD student in astrobiology at Pepperdine <laughs> University, which is amazing to me, you know, speaking of laboratories. But, you know, what makes her story so compelling? Yeah, it was great. It was a wonderful opportunity to rewatch that. I had forgotten her story. And it stands out as the most compelling because she's so shy and she's so lacks self-confidence and she doesn't know what to do in a school that practices the Socratic method and, and values listening to her voice and wants to know what she thinks and is not, you know, there's no wrong answer. There's no, you're not performing for anybody. We genuinely want to hear what you think and what you're learning and how you grow from there. And so when she grows from that to become the director of the film, it's, I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. Yeah. And I love her mother's perspective. She's so strong. She's like, you know, this is my baby. And how do I know I'm doing the right thing by placing her at this kind of a school? Mm. She notices, she's so perceptive. She sees her colleagues and her friends' children, and she sees sort of like the lack of of all these important skills that they have going to these traditional schools and and want something different for her daughter mm, and mm. the confidence that she imparts and the how articulate she is and how much she changes in the course of a year is i think it's every educator and parents dream to see that kind of a shift in a child yeah i was going to actually follow up with with this question which as i listen to it i'm prompted to you know i go back to your classroom sarah to mrs rogers neighborhood and I wonder in what ways are you growing like a vegetable garden caretaker? You're growing confidence. Like, you know, I, I'm not even sure how to ask it, but it's, you know what I mean, right? You're growing it. How do you grow it? How do you grow confidence? I think giving children, like providing opportunities for them to be leaders, for to present in front of a group, to... Mm make mistakes and that's okay to grow from that what did to reflect on what we do to be part of a community and to feel that so we have like little opportunities to present in front of a small group maybe some children feel confident with that then we present in front of the class maybe you have a classroom job where you read the news at the end of the day mm. and you the developmental handwriting of your friends. I lost a tooth today. Mm. And then maybe then you can be a little bit more confident in your sharing day. You bring something really important to share and your voice is really small, but then you need to speak louder for other people to hear. Yeah. And then I think about one of my students today, we read a book about speaking up and this is like stemming from a lot of conversations and diversity lately and representing voices and, and learning about change makers like Martin Luther King, Ruby Bridges, and other people in the community that have voiced their opinion and children made signs around campus saying like, you know, stand up for yourself, stand up for others, mm -hmm. help a friend, give a hug. And then today, one of my students, her mother is a nurse and she shared 
some of the nurses strike and a photo of them and, mm, yeah. and how proud she was. Then she put it outside with our posters mm. as part of like knowing that she has a voice and she's going to use it to represent what she believes in and, you know, and feels confident enough to do that. And I think if we can provide opportunities for this regularly, it shows that beauty from within. It shows that confidence. Yeah. Love that. And what you're doing is you're growing future Samanthas because there will be those moments in the future where they have the opportunity and, and they become figuratively and almost metaphorically and, and literally directors of theater. It's, it's the theater that is their life and they're going to direct that play. That's awesome. Wonderful. So Sarah, I'd love to end episodes by giving my guests the opportunity to shout out to the giant or giants upon whose shoulders they stand, that mentor, guide, coach, teacher, friend, sponsor who made all the difference. So who is Lauren Inouye and what are the magic ingredients of teaching and learning that she shared with you over the first five years at Hanaholi? And how, how did she teach you to cook with these ingredients, if you will? Oh, I love that. It's such a cool metaphor. I think anybody that knows this person knows <laughs> what a gem that Lauren is. Sort of like in the way that, you know, somebody like Mr. Rogers is leading by example and gentleness and love. Mm. She comes at everything from this. When I reflect back on what I learned through the Reggio Amelia approach and how they talk about coming the documenting with love and coming from this pedagogy of relationships and, and true listening. This is what Lauren does. She will have like five bags on her shoulders on the way to her car, perhaps even on the way to an appointment and a child stops her and she, you know, to talk about something and she will drop everything, ask how, you know, how they're mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. how their uncle's doing, and find every point of connection and relationship. And I think these days, and perhaps in our culture, it's really hard to find somebody that models that for everybody mm. and makes you feel as if you matter. And they're going to give the time of day for you. Mm. And I think that was huge for me to have taught alongside, been friends with, and been mentored by somebody so dynamic. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's that's so inspiring. So we'll dedicate this episode to Lauren. Thank you, Lauren, for yeah. all that you've done. And thank you for always putting down the bags and asking, what's going on today? Yeah. I love that idea. And I love the concept that that's really what, you know, child-centered means is that you slow down your own life in order to meet the kid where they're at. That's beautiful. So, Sarah DeLuca, this has been an absolutely fabulous process to get to know you, to do all of this research about your work. It was a real privilege, frankly, to be in the audience when you presented your sabbatical in Italy. That was marvelous. That keynote that you delivered just got so many wonderful quotes and great photos and everything in it. It was just a real delight. So it's been a great process for me. I've learned so much and really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you. It's been a wonderful process for me, and I'm completely honored. I really, really appreciate this experience. Thank you, Josh. You're welcome. Take care. Okay. Bye. Our editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. 
Our theme music is created by a remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work on his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and 2,000 cities. We'd be grateful if you would support these episodes with Leading Edge, innovative and imaginative educators and students by giving us your own rating and writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. This series is sponsored by Education Change Agent, Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the award-winning documentary film, Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. If you're committed to rolling up your sleeves and joining thousands of educators, business professionals, nonprofit leaders, and parents, as we reimagine education to be relevant and learner-centered, please join the What School Could Be global online community. Simply log in to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or download the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast and on LinkedIn at Josh Rapoon. Listeners, one of the most important things we all can do is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. For sure, we need a surplus of both right now. Until next time, ahui ho, and thank you for listening to the What School Could Be podcast. <laughs>